0: what is my podcast about a podcast where we get together on a basis of once every two weeks to talk about a random topic and see if we can figure out what we want to talk about for our podcast i'm hosting this week's episode i am matthew and as always i am joined by peter hello there and keith
1: can we always say peter's name before mine I don't always i'm don't the better
2: friend that's not true. I'm the worst friend. He probably just wants to get me out of the way and save the best for last.
0: I had to switch it up every time. I'm like the dessert anyway. after the meal. Anyway, how have you guys been?
2: I have been well. I'm good. It's
0: good. Me, myself, I'm quite exhausted from this week, so uh, I may or may not space out a few times during this recording. <laughs>
2: Nothing wrong with spacing out during our recording. I do it quite regularly, and I'm going to try and remain focused to carry some of the slack if you do space out.
0: Thank you. Much appreciated. That looks
1: like that therapy session we gave you guys last uh, episode worked out.
2: Yeah, we've become even stronger friends because of it. Also, I spoke to Matt repeatedly over the course of the past week, so that also definitely didn't hurt. Um yeah. Yeah, friendship grew stronger. Friendship begins to exist. I'm just kidding. We were friends before. That was really mean. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. What's going on in the world these days?
1: Uh, so there was a few new things we got, uh One of the ones that came out, something that interests me specifically, uh, *Resident Evil Infinite Darkness*, which is going to be a series we're getting through Netflix. Which is oh yeah, that's the uh,
2: *Resident Evil* anime, right? Uh, Not quite anime, but animated series.
1: Yeah, it's a CG one like they do with all the rest of them uh, for the movies. So uh, this one is kind of—I'm not sure if it's before or after the events of four, but this is Leon being a U.S. agent of sorts and infinite darkness comes, I guess. I don't know the exact details, but it's with them when they're younger, him and Claire. Reunited again, finally. Except for all the other times they reunited, finally.
2: Also, not technically reunited, just united because this is back before the events of the games.
1: Well, it's after 2, so...
2: Okay. It's around the I time thought-
1: of 4, so we we're around 2008-ish, roughly.
2: Okay. I had the timeline slightly messed up in my head then. Good old Claire.
1: Yeah, and I think Resident Evil is one of the few franchises that does a really good job of having a storyline in the games and the movies that are all canon and progress each other. Yep. And hopefully this will all be another one of the movies are canon. Well, I mean in the CGI. Uh, the CGI. Yeah, I know,
2: I know. I'm just being an asshole. Um, yeah, no, this one actually looks really good from the trailer. Some very solid qualities to it.
1: Of course, and other big news for us, too. Uh, Eternals finally got its official teaser trailer.
2: I saw that. Like, It's one of those things, the Eternals are one of the properties I have slightly less awareness of than other Marvel properties. Which is a mark of shame on my nerd credentials, but whatever. I'm here to be proud about my marks of shame.
0: I mean, I never heard about the Eternals until you guys brought it up.
2: Um, But the trailer makes it look really good, and it... It's the storyline we roughly know of the Eternals, where they've kind of been around for a very long time, kind of watching over human society, and they uh, invariably viewed as gods. So they're not gods in the traditional sense, they're just essentially immortals with superpowers, who humans have just begun to start worshipping like gods. Uh, and it seems to take place predominantly after the events of Endgame, with... From a few lines of dialogue, it seems like they're living in a post-Steve Rogers and Iron Man world, trying to decide if they want to take on a more heroic role.
0: uh, I was just watching the trailer, and a little bit of a funny moment, when one of the characters asked, as they were all sitting around a table, so who's going to lead the Avengers now? I just kind of chuckled to myself, because right as that was said, you, Peter, while you were talking to Keith just in the background before we started recording, just suddenly popped up at the perfect time. It's like, uh...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like me.
1: Yeah, it's me. I'm the one who's going to be leading the Avengers. Yeah, of course. Not Richard Madden's Icarus.
2: No. If anything, I am going to be one of the civilians who dies in the background. Man, that, that sounds like a sarcastic joke, but if... If I could be in one of those movies and just be a civilian who dies in the background, I would be so fucking hyped about that. Oh, yeah. I would convince everyone to come to the theaters with me to see me die in the background on the big screen.
0: Or Even being in the movie for just like five frames.
2: Yeah, if it's the kind of thing I have to buy the DVD and pause the movie to show, hey, look, that's my face. Oh, I would like, buy every this single This is me dying the most
0: spectacular death in The Avengers. Meanwhile, Keith's the main character in movies.
2: the Avengers and doesn't call attention to it in the slightest.
1: <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it.
2: Yeah, it's just a thing. Don't worry about it. Yeah, we got a... Uh, I'm exciting. Uh, exciting. I'm excited <laughs> because we. Uh, it's been over a year at this point since we last got... Or It's, it's not over a year at this point, but it's coming up on the uh, year marker or two-year marker of us not having... Uh, received any new Marvel MCU movies. Like, we've gotten the uh, Disney Plus series, but we haven't gotten any actual mainline movies, so I'm starting to Jones for my next fix, but we're getting ever closer to Black Widow until they inevitably delay it again. But we're also getting a lot of, like, release trailers for the other movies in the series that have already been announced, so... All in all, we're getting back into a Marvel world, and I'm looking forward to it. Yes,
0: It is inevitable as one particular character might say
2: which character Anos.
0: it's like the marvel cinematic universe is inevitable
2: i don't remember him saying that
0: well he doesn't say that but he does use the word inevitable but anyway
2: are you thinking about wallace shorn from the princess bride no because i'm pretty sure he says inconceivable not inevitable a few times I don't know why I'm being like this, Matt. I know exactly what you're referencing. I'm just being an asshole. I'm sorry. I don't know what got into me. uh, Other than the person who I have been all of my life up until this point.
0: But nothing's changed. Got it. Okay.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm just a monster. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Was there anything else in the world we needed to discuss?
1: I don't know. I think we should just get right into the topic uh, so we can... Figure out what's causing all these
2: uh, problems for Peter.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, this <laughs> the, topic...
2: The topic might be related to why I'm having these problems. Yes, it's what's totally the topic?
0: related to why a lot of people have problems. Specifically, George Lucas. Because we are talking about the good old Star Wars prequel trilogy. That is, The Phantom Menace, The Attack of the Clones, and The Revenge of the Sith the quote-unquote greatest of Star Wars movies that introduced all of the lovable things like Jar Jar Binks and metaclorians
2: I am probably very alone in this opinion. I don't have a problem with Metaclorians. That's the whole point of doing prequels and stuff, is to expand on the lore of the universe you've built. So them introducing shit like Metaclorians doesn't upset me in the slightest. Like
0: Metachlorians as a term and an idea is interesting, but the way they described it, it's like, oh, it's bacteria. And uh, you can control the bacteria to make things happen. It's a I, very weird description to give.
1: I think uh, a big problem that a lot of people had with Metachlorians was not so much of them explaining how uh, Force users can use the Force. But more so that up to this point, it was kind of like anyone could be a Jedi, really, was kind of the feeling, as long as you had the training and were able to do that. But this kind of like means that there are people that effectively cannot use the Force whatsoever and completely cut off from it because of the nature of it.
2: Mm. To be fair, I don't think there's anyone who's completely cut off and incapable of using it. Because during the speech they have about midichlorians where they introduce it, Fucking Qui-Gon Jinn makes a point of saying that they're inside of everybody. Everybody has them. It's just the more you have of them, the more capable you are of controlling the Force. So it's not that there are people out there who are completely cut off from the Force and can't use it. It's just that people have a greater tolerance or weaker tolerance for it because of this natural thing that happens to them when they're born. Yeah. Regardless... I have never had a complaint about prequel. Uh, uh, no, sorry. Let me rephrase. I've never had a complaint about the midi argument. It's the prequels as a whole definitely have some issues, but the midi themselves are not one of those issues, if you ask yeah. me. And the prequels get a lot
0: more flack than they really deserve, in my opinion. It's like they're to certainly end? not as great as the original trilogy, but to be fair, yeah.
1: I, I feel that Star Wars is starting to move into that territory of it's the boomer litmus test. Where it's like, if you're there for the original trilogy, you hate the uh, prequel trilogy. If you're there for the prequel trilogy, you completely hate the new trilogy.
2: It's just the generation of whichever one was the first one you saw you think is beautiful, and the others are shit. Uh, Which is just kind of silly, but... Even like the people who try and say that there's nothing redeeming about the prequels are objectively wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of good because stuff there. the duel of the fates exists and nothing can change my mind about that fact.
1: Yeah, that's probably the best Star Wars song.
2: Yeah. Yes, and,
0: and the fight sequence also. Sure, the choreography was way over the top and very impractical, but it was amazing to watch. It made well, life cyber so, fights cool. Th-
2: that was the whole thing about the fucking prequel trilogy as a whole. Was in the original trilogy, the lightsaber fights weren't all that spectacular. Like, they had really cool space combat sequences, but the fights themselves were just kind of like a bunch of old men swinging swords around, is kind of how it felt. Whereas, yeah. when you go to the prequel trilogy, they actually seemed to take the time to hire a choreographer to make the fights look like people who were actually like peak athletes fighting each other.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the coolest things we got out of it too was Ray Parks Darth Maul because yeah, yes, that that ultimately is what redefined I think the whole concept of lightsaber fights. Uh, just the amount of things that man could just do on his own.
2: I think the coolest moment that most people don't give enough credit to is especially fucking yeah, uh, is the first time watching fucking Phantom Menace when. You've seen lightsabers up until this point, but then Darth Maul pulls out his, turns on the white inside, and you're like, oh, it's supposed to be a lightsaber fight, and then he hits another button, and the second lightsaber comes out the back, and you realize it's a dual-bladed lightsaber. That moment gave me fucking chills the first time I saw it, because it's just so badass. Like, the idea that, like, everyone out there has been using just the standard one-bladed lightsaber, and then you have a total beast show up, and he's like, nah, you ain't even thinking.
1: Also, I like Obi-Wan Kenobi as much as the next guy, but there's no way in hell he should have beat Darth Maul in that fight.
2: No. The way he beat Darth Maul is completely ridiculous. He didn't even have the high ground, which is like a linchpin point of later movies.
0: He didn't have the high ground, and sure, I guess you can argue that he had a little bit of an element of surprise, but even still, that was a big jump. And Darth Maul would have had to be like just completely ignoring him at that point to have gotten hit like that.
1: Well, the thing too, like, as Peter had mentioned there, with the linchpin of later things, Obi-Wan hit him with the same move that Anakin tried to hit Obi-Wan with.
2: Yeah. Like, legitimately, the way that fucking Obi-Wan Kenobi beat Darth Maul is the way Anakin tried to beat Obi-Wan Kenobi, but it didn't work out for him. Which, honestly, is probably the best bit of, like, plot set up now that I think about it because it means the reason that Anakin wasn't able to defeat Obi-Wan Kenobi using that move is because Obi-Wan Kenobi created the move and thus had already figured out the fucking counter move to it in his own head. I cut that's him when he's flying he over
1: me, that's how I do it.
2: Yeah, that's the reason he was able to do it because he was the first person to ever think to jump over someone and cut them in half from behind and thus he was also the only person to ever think attack them while they're in midair. Obi-Wan Kenobi was a genius of lightsaber combat. I'm calling it now.
0: And it's like also I like to mention the little sequence leading up to the big final part of that fight where they're running through the hallway with all the laser doors and yeah. the laser doors keep separating them all I like how it shows Darth Maul's Qui-Gon Jinn's and uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi's emotions and their personalities in that sequence. Because they all get separated. Qui-Gon Jinn just uh, kneels down and meditates while right on the other side of the door facing him is a pacing Darth Maul. And behind them, waiting to catch up, is an eager and ready to fight Obi-Wan Kenobi.
2: Well, I think one of the great things about Darth Maul uh, is they do a great job of portraying him kind of like a wild animal, essentially. Like, the way he paces when you see him uh, waiting to fight Qui-Gon Jinn between those laser walls. It's and, vicious, cunning, and fierce. Yeah, the way he, like, doesn't... re I could be mistaken, but I don't remember him talking throughout that movie... He had, like,
0: one line.
2: Oh, yeah, the line about how they get revenge against the Jedi once they finally take out the fucking Queen of Naboo, which makes perfect sense, I guess. Anyways, like, he barely talks. He spends most of it just, like, with his mouth closed, staring daggers at whoever he's looking at. He really comes across less so as, like, a well-trained and meticulous killer and more so, like, a wild animal who's barely being controlled by Palpatine. Yeah, he's
1: got skills and instinct, and that's what gives him the edge against everyone else.
2: Yeah. Meanwhile, Obi-Wan Kenobi has uh, perfection on his side.
1: You see, Obi-Wan Kenobi wasn't scared because he knows he shows up in the original trilogy, so he didn't have to worry about anything he did.
2: Yeah, I think that's another thing we can probably address, given that this was a prequel series. They do a lot of attempts at... uh, like, faking out that certain characters are going to die, or this is a situation they can't possibly get out of. But, like, due to the nature of it being a prequel, we kind of already know where everyone ends up when the movies are done. So, a lot of those fake outs don't really work. Yeah,
1: You mean they weren't really going to kill Anakin, Padme, and Obi-Wan Kenobi all in the, uh, Attack of the Clones?
2: Yeah. Shit like that, where they you have them trapped in an arena surrounded by wild beasts that are trying to kill them while fucking enemies cheer on the wild beast and like you're as the member of the audience supposed to be thinking oh no, they're all gonna die how could they possibly get out of this and it's just like, I mean they do though I don't need to know how, I know for a fact that they will get out of this
0: Yeah, that's just a given issue with any prequel yeah. material In the moment, the suspense is still there, but when you think about it, like there's nothing to worry about about the characters that you know are just going to be there in the next iteration of the series.
2: Yeah, that's why it's a little bit hard to have suspense in a prequel series. But I think overall, they did they didn't do a bad job of building
0: suspense. Yeah, I mean that's part of the reason why I liked Qui Gon more, is because because you know, yeah, he wasn't in the original trilogy. And so you knew he was going to die at some point, but because he was kind of getting up there in age already, you didn't know if he was going to be killed in one of the movies or if he'd just die between the prequels and the original trilogy.
2: Fair. Yeah, Can Qui-Gon- we also talk about, the- sorry, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, Qui-Gon's actually another great part that came out of the prequel trilogies too, because he's also our first look at on the big screen anyways, at a gray Jedi. Yeah, a Jedi
2: who's not hugely obsessed with light side versus dark side, just obsessed with the Force itself.
1: Yeah, there's the Force. There is no light or dark side. It's just how it's being used.
0: Yeah, which is like why he wanted to train Anakin when they found him, because despite the Jedi Council saying no, he has too much dark in him. Qui Gon is like. But he's strong with the Force. He'll be an asset regardless. We just need to nurture him the right way.
1: Well, uh, Qui-Gon Jinn was also big on prophecies and believed that Anakin was also the one that was going to bring balance to the Force. Which, in yeah. the long run, technically he did do until it was undone.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, to it's be like, fair, like that, He brought balance by bringing his children into the universe. And they well, finished bringing. Well, not Balans. just that. The, not even that.
2: The, the whole Jedi. idea of bringing balance to the Force is there's always two Sith, and there were hundreds of Jedi. After Anakin did his thing, there were two Sith and there were two Jedi. He literally brought balance back yeah. to the Force.
1: Well, quote unquote two Jedi, but essentially that is the right path. like words, the Jedi were so much in power that the Sith were becoming ridiculously strong because the Force does balance the sides. So by yeah, that, effectively killing off most of the Jedi, the Scythe came more into flux and allowed the uh, capability of there being balanced between them.
2: Yeah, because it's not something that's ever explicitly said in the movies, but in the expanded universe, there is the whole idea that the Force is self-balancing. So if there are more Jedi than Sith, then it balances itself out by giving the Sith greater power. I like The whole idea is essentially there's an equally sized pool of power for both light side and dark side. And if there's fewer dark side users, then they get to have the same amount of power, but split up between fewer people. So the individuals will be much more powerful. Whereas if there's a whole bunch of light side users, they have to share that same amount of power and it gets a lot more diluted between the individuals. Exactly. So he technically did bring balance to the force by killing the Jedi. It's just, the Jedi misinterpreted the prophecy because all the prophecy said was there is someone who will bring balance to the Force who is born of the Force itself. And you can kind of hear the Jedi adding their own interpretation because when Yoda says it, that's essentially all he says is that it'll bring balance to the Force. But later on when fucking Obi-Wan Kenobi is talking about the prophecy, he says that he believes the one who brings balance to the Force is also supposed to destroy the Sith, which was never explicitly part of the prophecy. It's just how most of the Jedi chose to interpret the prophecy. Right. So yeah, Anakin and Obi-Wan Kenobi have a weird relationship. I kind of want to call that out a little bit.
1: Honestly, this is one of the problems with it, and I think it boils down to they're relying more on telling you what they're doing instead of showing their friendship.
2: Yeah, the movies itself have... I think the biggest issue with the prequels as a whole is when the original trilogy came out, George Lucas had a bunch of cool ideas, but he also had a bunch of really not cool ideas. And the studios didn't really want to give George enough power to make the movie exactly the way he saw it. And a lot of the actors, if you read or interviews with the actors who worked on the original trilogy, is a lot of the actors were coming up to George and being like, this line makes no sense. What if we do it more like this? And they were essentially workshopping the script while filming it. Whereas once the Star Wars movie has had a huge amount of success people got a little bit too much faith in George Lucas. So when he wrote the scripts for the prequels, no one really challenged him on any of the stuff that was in there, which is why you get that really awkward and stilted dialogue, is because that's how George Lucas is as a writer, and it's just no one thought to correct him when they were filming the prequels, whereas when they were filming the original trilogy, there was constant actors pointing out that the lines didn't make a lot of sense, and they should be rewritten. So when you get to the prequels, you get fucking lines like, I hate sand, it's coarse, and it gets everywhere. And everyone just kind of going along with that being a normal thing that human beings say.
1: But it is. Say so it is coarse, and it does get everywhere.
2: Yeah, but that's not how people talk. <laughs> that in the fucking scene between Anakin and fucking Padme, where Anakin refers to Padme as being so beautiful, and Padme says, It's only because I'm in love with you. And then Anakin's like, ah, no, it's because I'm in love with you. And she's like, ah, so love has blinded you. Like That's not how people fucking talk, man.
1: That's how they talk in Shakespeare.
2: Yeah, this isn't fucking Shakespeare. It's supposed to be a silly action movie with laser swords. I mean, sure, this is long, long, long ago,
0: but you don't have to talk like it. But yeah, a big, I guess, weird feeling in the relationship between... Obi Wan and Anakin is when you first when they first found Anakin he was just a kid who was a slave to the remote planet Tatooine he was brought in and despite the Jedi Council being against it once Qui Gon died Obi Wan decided not just because Qui Gon wanted Anakin to be taught I'm going to take him on as my apprentice regardless of what the Council.
2: What? To be fair, Obi-Wan also had some very fucking weird feelings about it, because he was opposed to uh, Anakin being trained as a Padawan, and then fucking Qui-Gon called out, well, I'll just train Anakin as my Padawan, and the council was like, you can't do that, you already got Obi-Wan, and immediately Qui-Gon was like, ah, fuck it, Uh, Obi-Wan's not my Padawan anymore, he's ready to take the trials and become a master, and it's just like... That's got to really suck for fucking Obi-Wan. Because it sounds less like your master actually believes in you and is ready for you to move on. And more like he's just trying to get rid of you to make room for a new orphan boy he wants to train.
1: I mean, to be fair, Obi-Wan was pretty eager to take the Jedi Knight test. He's like, I am ready. But at the same time, with the extended lore of Star Wars, we also know this rule of only having one Padawan is wrong.
2: Yeah. Multiple Jedi take on multiple Padawan. It's just... Ugh, it that was just ridiculous. Um, but yeah. Even, it, uh, it's like, even in the second movie, we see Yoda
0: teaching an entire class.
1: Well, those are younglings, they're not Padawans.
0: Well, uh, yeah. I, I suppose, but still.
1: Or training dummies, I guess is another way to put it.
0: But yeah, uh, from and from there, Obi-Wan deciding, no, because Qui-Gon started to teach you, or was going to start teaching you, and he's dead now, I'm going to teach you in his place, we jump Several years into the future, like 10 years or something. And uh, they're a lot older in the start of the second one. And we get a little bit of back and forth conversation as things happen. Where we learn Anakin's a bit of a daredevil and they've gone through quite a bit of stuff now.
1: Yeah, that's kind of why their relationship feels weird. It's again, they're kind of, oh, you remember that great time we did that great thing because we're so buddy-buddy and that's kind of where it ends.
2: Uh yeah it was very show don't tell there was a lot of lines like this is a lot like blankety blank and it's just like this is nothing like blankety blank
1: also there's There's... one thing about Qui-Gon Jedi I just want to kind of go back to and touch on and that was about training Anakin because the council does tell him you're not allowed to that's it and then Qui-Gon's big loophole is pretty much that Simpsons episode where it's like I'm gonna walk forward swinging my hands like this and my eyes closed and if you get hit it's your own fault he's like Anakin I can't train you but just kind of stand around and watch what I'm doing
2: Yeah, that's very much what it was. It was, Anakin, you're still going to tag along with me wherever I go. Just pay attention to what I'm doing and see if you can learn a lesson from it, although I'm explicitly not teaching you.
1: So when I tell you that you do this to use the Force, I'm not teaching you. I'm just talking out loud.
2: I'm explaining my
0: process so you might uh, interpret it for yourself so you (laughs) can try it. In your own leisure.
1: <laughs> this is how you use the Force, and I don't want you to do any of what I'm telling you. This is telling you so you don't do it. Wink. Yeah.
2: yeah, to use the Force, you have to reach down inside of yourself and pull out this energy. So don't do that because you're not allowed to use the Force. It, you know what? It's less like the I'm going to walk towards you swinging my arms, and more like the episode of The Simpsons where Flanders buys a bunch of cardboard boxes And then Lisa and Bart ask where he bought them from, and he gives them the phone number so they don't accidentally call the phone number. (laughs) Except Qui-Gon's doing it intentionally. Um, Oh, God. But yeah, back to the fucking Anakin and fucking Obi-Wan.
1: You were like a brother to me.
2: They have the weirdest fucking relationship, because in the first movie, Obi-Wan wants nothing to fucking do with Anakin. Then they have all these adventures off-screen between movies. And by this point, Anakin is referring to Obi-Wan as his father, essentially. Like, I believe in fucking Attack of the Clones. He repeatedly makes reference to the idea that Obi-Wan is like a father to him. And then we get to the third one, and Obi-Wan considers Anakin to be like a brother. And it's just, what are you guys to each other? You keep, like, changing the game halfway through but also putting all of the, like, dialogue for why you're so close off-screen so we don't get to fucking see any of it. It's, uh, it's stressful.
1: You're like that cool uncle to me that buys alcohol for me when he shouldn't. Yeah.
2: It's like they skipped over
0: these big character-divining points that they just talk about in passing and decide instead to show scenes that are not necessary. Like, uh... Like, Anakin and Padme being in love, like, yeah, you can say that you don't have to explicitly go out of your way to show them going off to a remote island to spend a weekend together and have dinner and watch Anakin mess around on the back of some giant tick bear or whatever it is.
2: Okay. Sorry, go ahead, Keith. I was going to say,
0: I think there's a bigger problem with the
1: Anakin-Padme relationship, and that's the thing of, once they're in the relationship, it's like, okay, these guys have some chemistry reacting with each other. But the concept of them falling in love—that's displayed in these movies—is like it doesn't work at all. Like Anakin, Anakin comes is the as creepy- creepiest.
2: Yeah. Anakin's the creepiest fucking dude. So it literally starts with the equivalent of like a little kid developing a crush for his babysitter while she's looking after him.
1: Which that's to- fine. That's fine.
2: Yeah. Then ten years later, they meet again and the little kid clearly still has a crush on the babysitter, but he's 18 now, so it's cool. I Except thought about babysitter... you every
1: day up to this point, Padme. Padme, why are you walking away, Padme? I want to watch you while you sleep, Padme.
2: But the babysitter goes out of her fucking way to do shit, like turn off the cameras in her room because she could feel him looking at her through the cameras. Whenever he actually looks at her in the same room, she says, stop looking at me like that. It's making me uncomfortable. And he's it's like, just...
1: what? no, no." He's the first about that is so he's like, like, what? And he just gets this, like, horrifying grin on his face, just like, like that.
2: It's so uncomfortable. And then it gets to the point where they're going to die, so Padme is like, you know what? Truth is, I'm also in love with you. I just couldn't tell you that because you're a Jedi and I'm a senator and it makes our life too awkward. It's like, <laughs> no, you. all the reasons you were giving beforehand were perfectly valid.
1: <laughs> well, but she phrased it specifically, you're a Jedi, I'm a senator. Our worlds are just too different,
2: which also is not at all accurate because the Jedi regularly interact with his fucking senators. Like him being a Jedi is a legitimate excuse for them not to be together because of the whole Jedi code and not allowing yourself to have attachments because attachments lead to loss, and loss leads to all these other emotions. Hate, and hate that...
0: leads to suffering, and all of that.
2: Yeah. Loss leads to sadness. Sadness leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. That Which leads does. to
1: a giant robot suit.
2: For a second, I thought you were referencing General Grievous for some reason, but no, yes, also a giant robot suit for Anakin as well.
1: Yep, and funny enough for Sith, it does usually lead to a giant robot suit more often than yep.
2: Yeah. Yep. It is not an uncommon thing. Even the guy we referenced earlier, Darth Maul, he doesn't get a giant robot suit, but he does get giant robot legs.
1: Which ones? The spider mm-hmm. legs or the uh, normal robot legs?
2: I was referencing specifically the spider legs. That's fair.
0: Okay, yeah, because I'd say those are giant. Uh, regular legs, not giant.
1: Fair. Palpatine's also kind of a robot in the new trilogy.
2: Yeah. They all... A lot of Sith end up kind of as robots. Well, uh,
0: I guess if you look into the Sith lore, they would have to be a little more technologically advanced, because... Guess what, they have to make their own lightsabers and make their own synthesized kyber crystals?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not that... uh, See, the lore is very weird on this, because from what I remember of the lore, it's not that they're making their own... Well, there's two explanations. It's they're making their own synthetic kyber crystals, or they're taking real kyber crystals, but making them bleed red and that's what causes them to turn into red lightsabers because the dark side of the force causes the kyber crystals to bleed. It's it's fucking weird, man. There's the the extended universe of Star Wars is weird whenever they try and get down and dirty with the explanations. And that's
0: why it's science fantasy, not science fiction cuz there's there's no science to it.
2: Yeah, um, it's a very heavily uh the best description for fucking Star Wars is that it's a space opera. It's not a fucking grounded in hard science, anything like that.
0: Yeah.
1: But
2: boy, does it do space opera fantastically.
1: Yeah. And that's not to say like these relationships are all like really weird and feel kind of forced. Like they didn't know how to start things. But like I said, like Padme and Anakin interacting after the fact of them falling in love, I, I feel it came off as perfectly fine. Like, If you forget just the awkward beginning to it, it's like, okay, this is passable.
2: Yeah, essentially, as long as you cut out the first movie and a half, their relationship makes perfect sense to me. The one thing about the relationship that doesn't make sense is that Anakin starts having nightmares about his mother, so he goes off to rescue her from the Sand People, and then comes back and tells Padme that he killed all the Sand People, but not just the, the men the women and children too, because uh, he was be- so angry.
1: I believe you mean he, they're animals and he slaughtered them like animals.
2: Yeah. yeah. The women and children too. Um, but then later on, he kills the Jedi younglings, and Padme immediately, when hearing this information, says, what? Anakin? No! There's no way he could. That's not who he is. And it's just like, but he explicitly told, you. Told, <laughs> explicitly told you a year ago that he killed a bunch of women and children. Like Although can't actually...
1: this this might uh, be a little bit more negative on Padme, who might not see Tuscan Raiders as people.
2: Oh, you're right. Padme might also be a racist. Oh yeah, no, yeah she uh, probably is.
1: What if Padme is the reason he wouldn't evil? Because like normally that would have been like, oh no, that was horrible. We need to like, you know, you need to talk to somebody. This is bad. You killed those people. But maybe she was like, eh, I mean, he's right, they're animals, so that's kinda like I guess getting veal.
2: I mean, going back to the first movie she specifically creates a plan where she sends all of the Gungans, the only other race on her home planet, into direct war combat with an army of robots, oh. fully expecting them to be the cannon fodder that gets sacrificed while she orchestrates a plot to sneak into the castle to fucking capture the leader of the opposition. Right.
0: And add into the fact that the the droid army was defended by force fields that could only be deactivated from the spaceship in orbit that the gungans had no way of getting to
2: like yeah, and she so also it came was up with more a more of a distraction were...
0: for uh, the more uh, able forces of uh, the other peoples to go and actually do fighting
2: like she makes a big deal during that speech about how their relationship is symbiotic and what happens to one happens to the other and they need to learn to work together because they haven't been working together all along. But you kind of get the vibe from the way she wrote the plan that if all the Gungans happen to be destroyed in the battle with the robots, she wouldn't be overly heartbroken about it.
1: If the Naboo people die, the Gungans die. But if the Gungans die, we have more space for the Naboo people.
2: Exactly. We can move into the marshes and be happy.
1: Man, I think we just found out that uh, Padme is xenophobe.
2: Padme is definitely kind of a xenophobe.
1: <laughs> now, uh, th- the other relationships in the movies, the prequels specifically, I do feel a lot of them are the characters work a lot better than the main cast we're supposed to be following. Mace Windu is a, a great storyline itself. Uh, the uh, Fett family and what they're doing is also very interesting. Count Dooku is
2: great. Well, Christopher Lee is fucking fantastic in whatever he puts his hands on, but Yes, in particular, as Count Dooku, he's phenomenal. I think one of the, like, best fucking things that came out of the prequels was fucking Mace Windu's meeting with George Lucas, where he's talking to George Lucas, and he's like, so, about the color of my lightsaber. And George Lucas is just like, well, good guys have blue and green, and bad guys have red. And fucking Samuel Jackson's just like, yeah, but what about the color purple? (laughs) And George is just immediately like, you know what? Yeah. That could probably work. And like the fact that fucking Samuel L. Jackson just talked George Lucas into completely changing the canon because, like, I think the logic he gave in an interview was he wanted to be able to see himself in the large Jedi battles and having a purple light yeah. drawing your eye to him helps make that a lot easier. If but the fact the that he managed to turn th- that into something is fantastic. would yeah. so be easy
0: to spot a purple lightsaber in a sea of just blue and green. It's like, oh, oh. yeah. Yeah. there he is
1: well that's also the thing too is like we started getting more about like the lightsaber colors too like what they meant for you know uh blue i believe is what the guardian jedi which are good with the lightsabers green is more force powerful people yellow are tend to be the sentinels and the seekers and yep. then purple was what uh you dance with the dark side essentially like you use emotion to power the force but then you never quite cross over to the dark side is the idea
2: yeah I think the logic was, because purple is the mix of blue and red, it was the idea of a Jedi Knight who has struggled with the dark side in the past, so their blue has had a splash of red added to it, and that's how you get purple. And then red was just the synthetic-slash-bleeding crystals, depending on who you ask. But
1: yes, uh, Samuel Jackson did a great job in this, and th- there's a few interesting things I noticed in this one that, like, I guess they're not really apparent from the beginning. But I guess talking about Dooku and Samuel Jackson's uh, Mace Windu specifically, Mace Windu just never trusts Anakin through the whole thing. He's like, yeah, this guy, I don't trust him whatsoever. And the moment or where he starts trusting him is when he dies.
2: Like, literally, he makes it very clear he does not trust Anakin for a second. Then he has a conversation with Anakin where he says, if what you're saying turns out to be true, then I'll trust you. But for now, stay back. And then what he's saying turns out to be true. Anakin shows up to help out with the situation. Windu clearly trusts Anakin at least a little bit. And immediately Anakin gets him killed. He doesn't kill um, him, but he is directly involved in the killing of him.
0: Yep, because unfortunately, uh, Anakin got a little too friendly with the...
2: Over the Chief Chancellor. Palpatine. Yeah, Chief Palpatine. Chief Palpatine.
1: My, my favorite thing about the whole scene, too, is because, like, it's that huge dramatic moment of, like, oh, no, Anakin, help me, blah, blah, blah. And, like, he, he knocks window, out the window, well, with the help of Chief, anyways. And then he falls down, like, oh, God, what have I done? And then Palpatine's like, now rise, is my apprentice, Darth Vader. And he's like, oh, sure, whatever, okay.
0: He's
2: like, okay, I guess I'm, uh, uh, i guess The thing I you, love man. more about that is, like, Anakin walks in and sees Palpatine try and shoot Windu with lightning, and Windu just uses his lightsaber to reflect the lightning back at Sheev, and Sheev's like, he's killing me! I can't keep this up much longer! It's like, it's literally your attack being bounced back at you! Yep. He's not doing dick to you right now!
1: <laughs> if I keep was... this up, I'll kill myself, and I can't continue this!
0: <laughs> and that was part of the reason why uh, Mace Windu didn't trust
2: Anakin anyways, because he didn't trust
0: the Chancellor.
2: Yeah, and then like later we do get to the point where Anakin realizes that Mace Windu is going to kill him, but at first he clearly was of the mindset of capture, it's only when he reveals that both the Senate and the courts are all in fucking Palpatine's pockets, so if they do try and bring him to trial, nothing will come of it, and that's when Anakin has his fucking immediate and unending change of heart switch sides moment, but yeah... It's another one of those beautiful moments of if you stop and think about what's happening on screen for even a moment, you'll realize it's fucking banana bonkers.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's an instance of characters getting their actions dictated by the plot as opposed to the actual characters' personalities and experiences. Mm
2: -hmm. And I feel like that's a lot of the issues with the plot in these prequels. Is like anything that feels forced is specifically because of the fact that, you know, by the end of this movie, Anakin needs to be a bad guy. He needs to be working for Palpatine and none of the other Jedi need to be alive. So a lot of the times the things that happen feel less so like they're happening because the characters are choosing for them to happen. And more so like they're happening because they need to happen for the plot to be where it is at the end.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, though, there's a lot of great stuff that happens in this. And it's more of like the background stuff, I find. uh, And this actually ties into the Count Dooku thing, because the hubris of the Jedi and their downfall is actually, like, a very interesting thing that's going on in the background that you don't really notice on a first glance.
0: And and part of the reason why all of that is so good is because they didn't have to shoehorn that in to fit in with the other trilogy. It's new stuff they were just expanding on, so they didn't have any restraints.
1: Yeah, they did have to, like, establish that, you know, the Jedi Order is gone by the time the original trilogy happens. But, like, their downfall and hubris, like, I think the big exemplifier of this is in Attack of the Clones with Count Dooku. Because we find out that Count Dooku actually apparently figured out this whole Sith thing, like, years ago uh, with Cypher Diaz. And they were trying to actually stop and prepare for Palpatine. But then the Jedi Order just would not have of it. It's like, it's impossible Sith Lords can't exist at this point, blah, blah, and all that stuff. So he's like, fuck it, I'm just going to go work for the Sith Lords and destroy them from the inside and take over
2: yeah. It's the fucking Jedi are broken and refuse to make changes to adapt to the world, so I have to work with the fucking Sith to break down the Jedi to get them to the point where it makes sense. And you kind of get the feeling that Palpatine was aware that Doku Doku wasn't joining him because of the fact that he believed in the Sith, but more so because he didn't believe in the Jedi, which is why Palpatine clearly orchestrated it from the beginning that fucking Doku Dooku would be killed by Anakin some point later on down the road. Yeah. Which is exactly what happens. Yeah. And we get and that beautiful, do it! Just Kill him! Do see. it!
0: Then just Dooku's face at that is like, oh, oh, I've uh, I've committed too far to this, and uh, Palpatine's
2: called my bluff.
1: I mean, honestly at that point, I would have, if I was Dooku, just like, uh, that's the Sith Lord you're looking for.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what I... Oh, he wants to kill me? By the way, he's the Sith Lord. If he's going to throw me under the bus, I'm immediately going to throw him under the
1: bus. I uh, willfully give up, I don't have hands, so I can't fight back, and if you let me live, I will definitely testify in court.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: but uh, unfortunately Anakin was there, and at this point he's starting to become very much uh, Palpatine's lapdog. Oh, 100%. Uh,
2: Yeah, him not even realizing Palpatine's evil, he's clearly fully drank the Kool-Aid, for lack of a better term, in that anything that Palpatine says to him is no longer taken with a grain of salt. Palpatine's the only one telling him the true truth in his mind.
0: mm mm-hmm. They sure... Sure, they tried to flesh out that scene a little bit to kind of show that Anakin was still struggling a bit with the decision to do... To go through with killing Dooku, but... When you look at everything that was leading up to it, how they were building Anakin in this trilogy, you kn- you knew he was just going to do it as soon as Palpatine told him to.
1: Yeah, they to kind of fair. play with the idea of him like going dark or not, even though we know what happens. Because he's like, I shouldn't do this. It's not the Jedi way. And he's like, oh, do it. And he does it. He's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And he's like, it's uh, only natural. He took your hand. So you took his hands and head.
0: Yeah. Yeah it was uh, you, you were defending yourself and and me so you did good that's a you, good thing
2: you kind of get the vibe that fucking palpatine was going to make him his apprentice right then and there if things had have gone slightly differently like the fact that uh fucking uh anakin insists on saving uh obi-wan kenobi after palpatine's trying to say no we have to leave him if we take him with him us we'll just end up dying with him. And fucking Alcon, uh, Anakin responds, well, he'll have the same fate we will. You kind of get the feeling that if Anakin didn't tell him to that they were saving uh, Kenobi, then that would have been the situation where fucking Palpatine was just like, hey, by the way, you're my apprentice now, and I'm a Sith Lord. Like The plans definitely got pushed back, at least from my perspective, Yeah, because this- of the fact that Anakin clearly still had a bit of light in him. Yeah, and And Kenobi
0: was at this point pretty much the only thing keeping Anakin on the side of good.
1: Well, that and Padme, but... uh, Well, we already discussed, Padme was
2: kind of drawing him towards the darkness.
1: (laughs) But uh, yeah, Palpatine's plan in this one, uh, 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 Revenge of the Sith specifically, is more focused on isolating Anakin for the turn.
0: Yeah, so he starts... So, yeah, Obi-Wan was sent out on a mission to the far rim of the galaxy.
1: I mean, Sheev does a lot more than this, because what Sheev does is he forces Anakin onto the Master's Council. uh, But they don't give him the Master rank, because how dare the politics try to tell us that we have to do this. And that causes a rift with the group, but also makes him the direct, like, counselor to Sheev. So Obi-Wan still has to do the war effort, but Anakin's kind of stuck back at home doing home stuff. So it's kind of like this bigger process of, like, isolating him from the Jedi Order and from Obi-Wan
2: specifically. Yeah, yeah, and Palpatine definitely knows at this point that there's no way they'll actually make him a master because of this. So he wasn't doing this just to get uh, Anakin on the council so he could find out information about what's going on with the council. Like, yes, that's an ancillary benefit, and now he can feed information to the council when he wants to. The main reason he did that, though, was because he knew how the Jedi Council would react to having a Padawan forced to sit on the council
1: Anakin's not a Padawan at this point He's uh, Uh,
2: a knight Uh, sorry knight not Padawan but uh, having a knight forced to have a seat on the uh, Jedi council Palpatine knew full well and good that he wasn't going to get made master and was just doing this to plant the seed in Anakin's mind that they were never going to make him a master that they were always going to be trying to hold something back from him he wanted to separate him from the Jedi in this scene
0: drive that wedge in just that bit deeper.
2: Yeah. There's also the fact that like Padme probably wouldn't have died giving birth if it weren't for the fact that Anakin went evil in that final little bit. So the dreams and the prophecy he was having were probably less so him seeing the future and more so Chief implanting the dreams in his mind and then becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, it's never explicitly said that he planted the dreams, but I would not be surprised if he somehow was using the Force to manipulate Anakin's dreams. Because later on, in a scene shortly after he has the dreams about Padme, fucking Palpatine calls out the fact that he's worried about the death of Padme. So it's clear that he knows about it already. So it's just one of those things where he's very clearly behind the scenes manipulating all of Anakin's relationships to the point where the only positive one he has left is his relationship with Palpatine.
1: That's fair. Now, uh, one thing I will say is I don't know if I agree fully with Palpatine giving him these visions to try to trick him because one thing that's always been very clear about visions in the Star Wars universe is they're not quite what they seem. Fair. Uh, So it could have very well been the Force warning him that this will happen if he continues on his path inadvertently turning (laughs) it into a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Yeah, that's uh, since his mind's clouded by the dark side of the Force, he sees it more as, it's like, this is going to happen regardless if I don't try to stop it.
1: Yeah. But because that was his mindset and that was his goal, by getting the vision, he effectively starts the prophecy down that path, even though yeah. we find a lot of times that the Jedi visions are more of possibilities and not so much exacts.
2: Yeah, it's never explicitly said, but the Jedi don't see the future. They just see possible futures and kind of have to work off of that information. Exactly. That's why there was all that confusion about the prophecy of Anakin bringing balance to the Force. It's because they saw possible futures and had to interpret it one way or another. They didn't know exactly what they were seeing.
0: It's like they saw... A balance between light and dark, but didn't know what that balance entailed.
2: Exactly. If only everyone was a little bit more like Qui-Gon Jinn. Yes. We all need a
0: little bit of Qui-Gon Jinn in our lives.
2: So, the other main issue that people have with the uh, prequel trilogy, less so to do with storytelling and more so to do with movie making in general, is in the fucking ridge Tridge... Like 95% or maybe not 95%. I don't have an exact percentage. But as much as possible, they used practical effects wherever they could. Whereas by the time they got to the prequels, it was very clearly of the mindset of, Oh, CGI is fantastic. This is the best it'll ever be. So we'll use it everywhere we can because that'll make everyone's lives so much easier. And as we now know, CGI is never the best it will ever be. And it's always going to look bad a couple years down the line.
1: Well, it's more yeah. so how you implement it. If you make everything CGI, then of course it's going to look dated and bad, but if you use it, it to touch up, then most things that do that actually turn out well. A uh, good example oh, yeah. this is the original Jurassic Park still looks really good because it was uh, practical effects with CGI touch-ups.
2: Yes. Yeah, to be fair, I don't mean CGI itself always looks bad, I just mean when, for instance, you make an entire character who's purely CGI, it tends to not age as well as if you use practical effects, and then use CGI to make it look a little bit more alive.
1: Though, to be fair, I think a lot of the CGI in the original trilogy doesn't actually look like it's that badly dated.
0: No. It's more, uh, in the original trilogy, all of the laser effects, how they I guess came across so much brighter, and kind of just on top of everything.
2: Yeah. Because in the original trilogy, I could be mistaken, but, like, most of the CGI that existed was the laser effects from the blasters and then from the lightsabers, and then a few of the outer space shots. Most everything else was done with practical effects, yeah. to the point where all the aliens were just essentially rubber suits that people were wearing. Yeah. Whereas in fucking... Yeah, there's even the a prequel- scene
0: where one of the Ewoks, you can see the actor's eyes in yeah. the suit. And the only reason they had Ewoks is because they didn't have enough uh, money to make uh, costumes for... Uh, oh, I can never remember. Wookiees. Yeah, Wookies. They couldn't well, make the Wookiee village like they had intended.
2: Well, it's not even that they didn't have enough money to make the costumes. It's that the guy playing a fucking Chewbacca was a freak of nature who was incredibly tall. And that's kind of what it was needed to make Chewbacca look like an alien was not just the fur, but also the size of him. And so to do a bunch of Wookiees, you need a bunch of other people who are also similarly proportioned. Otherwise, it just looks like Chewbacca's a freak among his, amongst his own people. So that's the reason you don't see a bunch of Wookiees in the original trilogy, was both it costs more money to make a bunch of Wookiee suits, but also it's hard to come across a bunch of people who can play Wookiees at the same time. Also,
1: Peter, take a hard stance that if you're tall, you're a freak.
2: Yeah, honestly. If you're taller than me, you're a freak of nature. <laughs> I say that because the people of the internet don't know how tall I am, so for all they know, I'm the freak of nature.
1: Nobody specifically said if for taller than you, that means you're always yeah. the litmus test, so you're not a freak of nature then, by your own rule. Uh,
2: yes, but if they think I'm a freak of nature, then people who are taller than me are by extension freaks of nature. <laughs> for all they know, I'm seven feet tall, and I'm saying people who are over seven feet tall are freaks of nature. By the way, I'm 12 feet tall.
0: (laughs) Speaking of CG creatures,
2: the Gungans.
0: Gungans.
1: So one fun thing here about Jar Jar Binks is that uh, this is actually one of the first examples of a really well done performance capture uh, that actually this is kind of the technology used for Jar Jar Binks is kind of the precursor to all the technology that's used now
0: because he yeah. was not entirely cgi
1: yep and, and a lot of these stuff of funny they... because
0: the uh i like how when you see pictures of the costume that the actor playing jar jar binks was wearing he has a visor over his eyes so the actors who were talking to the character jar jar binks wouldn't look at the actor's eyes but the eyes of the head that he was wearing and uh, yeah,
2: the,
1: the other cool thing about this is the not just the technology, but also the programming for doing this was also kind of made while well, we're doing this. Uh, if you watch a lot of interviews uh, with the actor, there's actually a lot of talk about how like they would be shooting scenes and then building the code for transitioning that into CGI while they were filming. Yeah,
2: yeah. So yeah, we'll... in that sense, Treasure Binks was absolutely one of the bright spots of these movies. Yeah, was, uh, in a cgi
0: when done or when they try to push cgi a lot in a movie sure it can be good in the way that it pushes the boundaries of what can be done with cgi at times but also a lot of time it also subtracts from the overall quality of what could have been achieved if they just went with a little more practical
1: oh definitely but yeah, uh, Ahmed Best, uh, the actor who plays Judge Binks, definitely one of the first people to kind of pioneer the whole concept of uh, like modern day performance capture, and mm-hmm. it really shows. Like, even though Judge Binks does like looking at it, it's very clearly a CG character. It's one of the first ones that actually moved naturally.
2: Yeah, yeah, like, because just, they had a full-on just... mocap going on. Yeah, it's like despite the
0: fact that the characters look. You can tell that they're CGI. They look decent. They're not bad CGI. Yeah.
1: And I think that's just due to how, in the Star Wars universe, how a lot of the alien-looking things have already kind of been established. Having something that looks CG but not, like, horribly, like, computerized CG fits into the world still.
0: Yeah, and I, I do have to honestly say that I preferred the appearance of the CGI Gungans over some of the absolutely atrocious puppets that they had in the original trilogy.
2: (laughs) I suppose my big thing with stuff like that is the issue with that kind of stuff is always that when you have a puppet in the room, even if the puppet doesn't look great, it looks like it's in the room. Whereas with bad CGI, it can often look like it was just superimposed on top of the screen, yeah, because it essentially was. So The lighting is always the fucking hardest thing to get right in a situation like that, and with the fucking CGI, uh, CGI versus puppets or stuff like that. Even if the puppet looks bad, if you do the lighting right, it's harder to notice the puppet, whereas with CGI it takes a lot of work to make the creature actually look like it's in the scene and not kind of stick out a little
1: bit oh definitely and that's just like the natural learning curve of it where this was one of the well i wouldn't say it's like it wasn't the first movie to do it but it's one of the first like big movies that the original trilogy used so much cg like i think was it phantom menace and attack of the clones is pretty much all on green screen for all the scenes
2: yeah yeah it is like 95 percent green to screen with a little bit of soundstage put in front And And even then, it's mostly, like, the chairs that actors have to sit in are the things that's real. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Thinking back on the movies, I can't picture any scene that would have been fully practical. Like, any frame.
1: No, not really.
2: Because even the ones that take place indoors, they oftentimes have windows with views of the outside. And the views of the outside oftentimes would have to be fucking CG'd in.
0: Yep. Uh,
1: So one thing I kind of want to talk about, and this has kind of been my issue with the prequel trilogy specifically, and that is the first movie, The Phantom Menace. I feel like the biggest problem with that one is there's doesn't feel like there's a main character in it. Uh, I think Red Letter Media was the one who kind of summed it up first, and I was like, that was my epiphany moment of like, oh, that's what I've always felt was wrong with the original movie. Or the first movie.
2: Yeah, the first movie. like,
0: are yeah, I... not right. Because it opens up and you're introduced to the two Jedi. And there's not one point in the movie that gives you the feeling of, okay, this is the main character that we're going to be focusing on. Like, there's points where it's kind of hinting towards, okay, Qui-Gon Jinn is the main character of this movie, just because he's the main driving force for why they get Anakin and uh, how Anakin starts on his path to becoming a Jedi and then Sith Lord. But even still, it switches the emphasis between him, between uh, Obi-Wan, and like all the others, the Senate, when they're in the movie, and all well,
2: the Gungans. I would actually
1: time. argue that Obi-Wan does not get emphasized at all in the first movie. He's just kind of there.
2: The issue is that the trilogy as a whole is about Anakin, so the first movie wants Anakin to be the main character, but it's really hard to make the child that gets rescued from a planet... The main character of the movie. Especially when they're so,
1: showing up 30 minutes into the movie.
2: Yeah. So that's the reason it feels the most out of place compared to the other two because the trilogy as a whole, Anakin is absolutely the main character. The whole trilogy, trilogy is about how Anakin became Darth Vader. Like, that's just, if you sum up the trilogy, that's what the trilogy is about. But the first movie, you can't really make it. Anakin the main character because he's just a shitty little kid honestly who likes to fix things yeah like you can easily sum
0: up the movies as like what first movie they find a, a kid on a desert planet and put him on the path of becoming a Jedi second movie uh attack of the clones
1: stalker finally gets the girl
0: stalker gets the girl and apparently a lot of cool things happened in the past <laughs> third movie uh things get creepy in relationships oh yeah and uh anakin decides to be a bad person now, yeah it's but, the, uh,
1: before we move on uh i'm making a rule now matt anytime we're reviewing anything i want your synopsis of it to start off the episode All right. (laughs) That's what I've learned from
2: this. Yeah, literally the first movie is just about how Anakin became a Padawan, and the second or went from being a slave to being a Padawan. And then the second movie is about how Anakin goes from being a Jedi apprentice to being kind of a Jedi Knight in his own right. And then the third movie is about how he goes from being a Jedi Knight to a Sith Lord. And that's the progression we see. Each movie is just about a turning point in his life up until he becomes Darth Vader.
1: Yeah. And that's kind of like where the big problem with what happens where, and it's something that I've noticed through most truly, they have a trouble setting up the story with all things. Like we had trouble setting up the first movie. We had trouble setting up the Padme Anakin relationship. It's just all these things kind of like they didn't know where to begin. And then once it kind of got started going, that's where they started fixing itself. But the first movie just suffers so much from it. Like there's only two really good scenes in the whole movie. And that's the Padres. And then the duel, the fights, battle at the end.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm a big fan of the uh, quote unquote machete cut as the best way to watch the first six movies. Because the whole idea is if you watch the prequels and then watch the original trilogy, it ruins the reveal that Darth Vader was Luke's father all along. And. If you watch them, the original trilogy followed by the prequels, then you know how all the characters get there. The whole idea of the machete cut is you watch four and then five, and as soon as you finish five and you just have the reveal of uh, Anakin, or Darth Vader was Luke's father, then you go back. You don't even watch the first movie, you just watch two and three and then go back and watch six. And so two and three feel less like they're trying to tell their own story, and it's more so a flashback explaining how Darth Vader became who he was. And honestly, it's my preferred way to watch the first 6 movies is you don't even watch the first movie, which is such a shame because the duel of the fates is such a fantastic scene that honestly, I would be fine with just watching about one scene to the point yeah. where I was telling Keith about this earlier, but I'm not a huge fan of the first Phantom Menace because the pacing is just so awkward throughout the entire thing. Yeah. So when I went back to rewatch it for this podcast, what I did was I put the movie on one and a half times speed to just speed through it. It still wasn't great. There's still awkward pauses that feel too long on one and a half times speed. So I don't know, maybe next time I'll watch it on two times speed if I have to watch the <laughs> first movie again. But when it got to the Duel of the Fates, I fucking put that shit on normal speed because I want to see every detail of that goddamn yeah. fight.
1: Yeah, and uh, the other great thing about that cut, too, is between episodes four and five is actually kind of the biggest uh, span of time between those. So having the flashback in there when you come back to episode six, it actually feels like, oh, stuff was going on while I was watching the flashback.
2: Yeah, it kind of explains the time jump that happens. It certainly does make sense and
0: really puts into perspective when you actually think about it of just how little there actually was plot-wise to the first movie.
2: Like, legitimately, it's not necessary to your understanding of the plot in this least. If you start off with Anakin just being the Padawan, or not even Padawan, but Apprentice training underneath uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you've got everything you need to know. You don't need the additional information of how Anakin went from being a slave to being that. The only thing that like requires even the least bit of explanation is why he goes back to Tatooine. But the fact that he explains, I keep having dreams about my mother, and I know she's on Tatooine. I'm going there to look into her. You get all the backstory you would have gotten from the first movie in that one scene anyway. Yeah, the
1: only things yeah. you really lose out on is Qui-Gon Jinn. Uh, specifically the fact that Qui-Gon Jinn comes back at the end of episode 3, because he figures out how to force ghosts.
2: Yeah, the first Jedi to ever figure out how to for for well, not the first, but the most recent Jedi to figure out how to force Ghost, and he does it specifically so that he can continue training Obi-Wan Kenobi to explain what he's been doing all those years on Tatooine.
1: Also, uh, kind of uh, shits in the face of the, I believe, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi is ready to take the night thing, and then you come back as a ghost just to train him more.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's true. Hey, I know I said you were ready to take the night thing because <laughs> I kind of I been wanted it. to train this other kid, but I've been thinking about it No, you need more training, so I'm coming back from the dead just to train you I, some I've more.
1: kind of been watching everything from the ghost dimension, and I realized I went horribly wrong training you. Yes,
2: and Clearly, because because I mean, that, mistakes. you went wrong training Anakin. I am sorry. I accept full responsibility for Darth Vader. That, that's the one scene I want, is Pagan Jin's force ghost telling Obi-Wan Kenobi it's not your fault and essentially just like giving him a hug
1: and then the other thing we miss out on well two other things specifically how Sheev ended up in charge of the Senate which I guess isn't really too important for the scheme of things and also who the fuck is Jar Jar Binks yeah
2: Yeah. but (laughs) right cause in the second movie he's just all of a sudden just some counselor yeah he's not even a counselor he's just an aide to fucking uh, Padme who when Padme leaves makes him her representative on the Senate while she's not around.
1: Yeah. They don't explain why he's there or the relationship, just he is inferred to have a relationship with everybody. So I think if someone never saw the first movie and went that that cut, they'd be very confused on why they gave this man just any power. That's true. Because he comes off as so incompetent.
2: But to be fair, if anyone's ever watching the first or the first six movies in this order, it's probably because an actual fan of Star Wars was like, you need to watch these movies. This is the order we're watching in. And the moment they start to go, what's up with that guy? The person who like the Star Wars aficionado with them just goes, Shh.
1: We don't talk about They're both, that. They're
2: like, we're not we're not discussing that character. That character doesn't exist. Ignore their existence entirely. Like, Which is shame, I'm gonna seems-
1: say it. it's gonna be controversial. Jar, Jar Binks is not that bad.
0: Yeah,
2: he, he isn't that bad.
0: To be fair, he's he also George Lucas' no point favorite also. fucking character.
2: Like, George Lucas has come out and said that Jar Jar Binks is his favorite character in the entirety of Star Wars. He said that Jar Jar Binks was the linchpin to fully understanding the original trilogy. Like, he even went out and... I think he said that both, like during the like press junket that happened for uh, Phantom Menace. He made a point of saying how Jar Jar Binks is what ties it all together. And he's really what's going to tie the entire trilogy together. And then he also came out and said in interviews after the trilogy came out that he realized he had to listen to the fans more. And that meant taking out a, a lot of Jar Jar scenes and putting in a lot more lightsaber battles.
0: And that's probably why we never got that uh, that route of Jar Jar being the actual Sith Lord.
2: I don't think that's what he was referencing, but it does make me really curious to know what his plan for Jar Jar was, that Jar Jar was going to be the linchpin of the entire trilogy.
1: And not the droids that are literally in every fucking episode. Yeah. But yeah, definitely adding more lightsaber battles was the way to go. Kind of talking about episode two, I think the biggest problem with episode two is just it's so forgettable. Yeah. There's not really anything standout in it. The only thing I can kind of think of is the Geonosis fight at the end is pretty good.
0: Yeah, and the uh, the fight between Yoda and Dooku.
1: Yeah. A hot take.
0: What was your guys'
1: opinion on Yoda, who had been, like, the slow-moving, like, old man up to this point? Pulling out a fucking lightsaber and then dueling somebody. What was your thoughts on
0: that? Bouncing all over the room? The Eight? first time I saw that in theaters, I was giddy in my seat.
2: I'll be honest, the first time I saw it, I thought it was more than a little bit ridiculous. Uh, The fact that they essentially expanded the lore to explain that Yoda's using the Force to enhance his every muscle so that he can fly around the battlefield while wielding a lightsaber. (sighs) It's a little silly. I think it's delightful to watch, but I do think it's a little silly.
1: Yeah, as a child, it's like, oh man, this is great. But like, when I thought about it longer, like more when I got older, my problem became with it, it's Yoda was just the best Jedi then? Is that just what we're supposed to take from this? Because Yoda always felt like he was more of, when it came to force power, he was probably the yeah. strongest one on the council. He wasn't
2: he the was best fighter.
0: He was always said to be the strongest force user, but then they made him an incredible fighter in the yeah. end of the second movie. Well, because
1: he... Dooku is described as the only person who could beat Dooku in a saber fight is Mace Windu, and that's, yeah, you know, maybe. And then Yoda just, like, goes toe-to-toe with him, and Dooku loses to the point that he has to, like, oh, if you come after me, I'm gonna kill your apprentices or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, but then even that is a little ridiculous, because Dooku starts dropping a big canister on the two guys, and Yoda, the greatest force user in the galaxy, is like, oh no, can I lift up this canister?
2: And go after Dooku? No, I don't think so. uh, Yoda definitely has a bit of a changing of his role in the universe, because in the original trilogy, it wasn't even that he was the strongest Force user, it was just he was the wisest Jedi, which is not hard when the only other one was Luke at the point we meet him, because fucking Obi-Wan's already dead.
1: He's the wisest Jedi, because Luke's a freaking idiot.
2: Yeah. Uh... But then when we get into the original trilogy, or not the original trilogy, the prequels, Yoda still has the role of being like the wisest member of the council. And then it's later on kind of added to his development that he's also the most powerful force user. Which
1: I'm fine, and then, that yeah. makes sense.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. It kind of goes with being wise. Is Both of them seem less so like it's him being powerful and more so just him being incredibly experienced. And that experience lends itself both to him being wise about situations as well as lending itself to him being very experienced with the Force, so he knows how to wield it efficiently.
0: And how to interpret any visions that he may or may not see.
2: But then we get into the fucking second movie, and it's... Yoda is also just hands down the best Jedi in all respects, because it's never explicitly... It's not said in the movies, but you go through all the different, like, lightsaber styles in the expanded universe, and like... Count Dooku's a master of the form that's best at dueling, so he's the best at one-on-one fights. Yoda's a master of what's considered the most form because of the fact that the lightsaber form also involves enhancing your physicality with the Force at the same time as you're wielding a lightsaber. It's like, he was already the best in every other regard. You didn't have to also make him the best at lightsabers.
1: That's true. Uh, on uh, the talk of uh, lightsaber dueling forms, uh, my personal favorite has always been the Viper one, which is the one that involves you turning your lightsaber on and off during the fight so that they can't block things.
2: Oh, that man. one is pretty fucking cool. That I do would like have how interesting
0: to watch in movies.
1: Yeah, because you, you swing your lightsaber forward and then you turn it on, so it's kind of like a stabbing motion with the lightsaber. Because,
0: yeah, because uh, you never think about that because. In a lightsaber fight, you just immediately default to, okay, they have a lightsaber, but it's also a sword. You never think that mid-swing, the blade could just disappear and reappear.
2: Yeah. See, the trick to that lightsaber, because I've read a bit about that one as well, and it's very aggressive, but where it lacks a little bit is if you're constantly turning your lightsaber on and off, it's also harder to block because you can't block with a lightsaber that's off if you're planning on turning it back on after you get past their sword so it's very aggressive but also not the most defensive uh, lightsaber yeah. form
0: yeah you'd have to Whereas be on the attack pretty much the entire time exactly
2: the kind of very nimble. O- yeah. The opposite of that one is the one that uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi is known for using which is kind of cool because you can see it a little bit and it kind of explains some of the gripes we've explained before is Obi-Wan Kenobi's fucking lightsaber he wins form that as he's You win he's master- higher than the enemy. No, it's, he supposedly, like, masters the form of defense. So it's not about attacking your enemy at all. It's about blocking every single one of their attacks until you tire them out to the point where they start making mistakes. And then you take advantage of those mistakes. Which is why Obi-Wan Kenobi doesn't really do a lot of damage to his enemies early on in the fight. It's just... After the fight goes long enough, eventually he cuts his opponent in half. That's just <laughs> what his fucking lightsaber form is. It's, I wait until my opponent gets sloppy, and then I cut them the fuck in half.
0: He's just lazy. Lets his opponent it, do all the work. That explains it's so much literally about just, the universe.
2: It, it literally is just I don't even try to attack until my opponent is fucking tired. That's what his lightsaber form is.
1: That's why he had such a hard time against Grievous.
2: Yeah. Because Grievous, Grievous' lightsaber form is I'm a helicopter now, I win. <laughs> I, I did fucking love that scene, just Grievous explaining, I learned the way of the lightsaber combat from Doku, and then he starts spinning the lightsabers like a fucking helicopter plane, and it's like, there's no way Doku taught you to do it that way. That's yeah. just not what he would have said. Yeah, I want to see, see
1: Doku uh, using that specific moveset. Why did we never get that?
2: Yeah.
0: Maybe if the movies didn't have to be a prequel. Maybe if they decided to uh, make 7, 8, and 9 then and there instead of 4, 5, and 6. Or after 4, 5, and 6 instead of 1, 2, and 3.
2: Yeah. If the original trilogy were just the first three movies.
0: Either that or the continuation of 4, 5, and 6. Just so they wouldn't have to try to shoehorn the plot into what's already been established.
1: Yeah, well, that's always going to be a problem with any prequel thing, right? Mm -hmm. And honestly, considering... Funny enough, them setting up things in the uh, original trilogy wasn't the problem. It was more that they seemed to be just so lost on where to start. And I think that's also why Revenge of the Sith is considered the best movie of the original trilogy. Because they really knew what they were doing, and it was all just, this is what leads right into the original movie of the original trilogy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they had their start of the prequel done, and then they had their end point right mm-hmm. there. So they had the key points that they had to hit on, and then just build out from there.
1: Yeah, so for except for a few clunky parts, like, you know, Anakin being responsible for Windu's death, being upset about it, and then immediately going, okay, I'm a bad guy now yeah Uh, uh, those are really the only problems everything else i felt was like pretty good with revenge of the sith
2: yeah the movie as a whole is very solid it also has probably the second best lightsaber duel the first one being the duel of the fates but i would argue the one between uh fucking obi-wan and anakin at the end of revenge of the sith was also a fucking fantastic fight scene yeah the mustafar fight is
1: really good
0: and then near the end, where Palpatine was trying to play Frisbee with Yoda, but Yoda just didn't want to.
1: That wasn't really a lightsaber fight, though. That was more of just throwing things at each other.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that was a force fight, not a lightsaber fight.
1: Yeah. But yeah, Duel of the Fates and that are, uh, the fight on Moostar between Anakin and Obi-Wan are probably the two best lightsaber fights from this part. The only thing in there that I think comes close for that type of thing, and it's not really a lightsaber fight, but it's Mace Windu versus Fett.
2: Yeah, Fett versus Fat Fett is also great.
1: So each movie had a good fight. Sadly, Dooku didn't have any good ones.
2: Which is a shame, because they built him up as being so good with a lightsaber, and yet his two fights are the one where he easily dispatches Anakin and Obi-Wan because they're not willing to fight each other, and then loses to Yoda, and then when he loses to Anakin and Obi-Wan because they're willing to fight together.
0: Yeah, And it was the very first fight of the movie, so they couldn't make it too epic. Yeah,
1: But yeah, I, I think the problem is the original trilogy doesn't have any good lightsaber fights because there's only two people with lightsabers, really. And one of them yeah. was an old man and a robot. Yeah. All, yeah. Although the one at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi is really good.
2: Yeah, that one is definitely the best fight scene of the original trilogy. I still would probably rank both the fight on Mustafar and Duel of the Fates above that one, though. That's fair. Although uh, the scene of fucking Darth Vader throwing fucking Palpatine down the, like, tunnel while he shoots lightning at the walls is still pretty fucking great.
1: And uh, say what you will, I know we're still close to the new trilogy where people are mixed on if it's good or bad and all those things. Every lightsaber fight in that series was just great.
2: Yeah. Well, much to their credit, they came out at a time when fucking fight choreography is a thing that the world cares about right now. So they put fucking effort into it, and it paid off. The movies, much like your opinion, say what you will about the plot or the characters. I'm not going to argue one way or another. That's not what this episode is about. But the lightsaber choreography in those movies is actually pretty fucking great.
0: Yeah. And if you like that level of lightsaber choreography and would love to see an iconic lightsaber fight in I guess the original trilogy in that same manner, then there's a really good reimagining of that lightsaber fight the done Mr. on Fire YouTube. One? No, um uh or do all the fates. No, um, uh, from the original trilogy, the Obi-Wan Kenobi versus Darth Vader on the Death Star fight.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> the amazing... worst lightsaber fight in the series?
0: Yes.
2: There's and a I reimagining where it's actually good?
0: Part. It is an amazing one. It's uh on YouTube, a channel called Fix It in Post, or FX It in Post. And it's Star Wars SC-38 Reimagined. And it is worth a watch if you like lightsaber fights.
2: I'll have to look into that. Yeah,
1: definitely something worth seeing.
2: Oh, yeah i I googled it, and the first uh, I just googled the name of the channel, and the first thing that came out was Star Wars SC thirty eight Reimagined. Yep. What do you know? <laughs>
1: So, uh, what would you guys say is your favorite moment from the original trilogy then, Yeah, where we've kind of gone over everything at this point?
2: Now this
0: is pod racing. <laughs>
1: now this is where the fun God
0: begins. damn it, Matt! <laughs>
2: uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, Why is no. Annie keep uh, one-liners it really and things?
0: Man, I love the pod Sorry? race, though.
1: I think Anakin keeps getting these one-liners. This is pod racing. This is where the fun begins. Yeah. I slaughtered First them like children. The
2: races, now this is pod racing? Was when he was explicitly not pod racing. He was shooting off rockets inside of an a fucking robot, like, uh, AI command ship. I forget what the name of the. He was in the Naboo
1: fighter inside
2: yeah, the. Yeah, he uh... was, was, uh. Yeah, he was.
0: Wasn't it when he was uh, flying it through the enemy spaceship to the shield reactor or something?
2: Yeah, the. Uh, yeah, it, it was while he was inside the Naboo fighter, inside of the fucking, uh,. Droid Controller, that's what it was called. The Droid Controller ship.
1: It was the Trade yeah. Federation uh, blockade ship.
0: Yes. Yeah. But yeah. Um, aside from that line not matching up, but no, my favorite part is the pod race.
2: <laughs> of the entire trilogy? the
0: entire trilogy.
2: That's fair. Um, see, I would have guessed what Matt's favorite part was, and I would have said it would be the uh, arena fight during uh, Attack of the Clones, When fucking goddamn C-3PO just starts going off with the fucking puns. Now, I would have
0: loved to agree with you, except for the fact that that's in the second movie. And as we've already stated,
2: that movie is just so not memorable. I can't even remember that scene. So, it's literally, it's in the scene where fucking C-3PO gets slightly disassembled and then reassembled with other droids. That's like his his head's
0: put onto a battle droid or something, right?
2: Yeah, and then a battle droid's head is put onto his body. Um, And R2-D2 runs onto the battlefield after C-3PO gets knocked over, and R2-D2 tears off C-3PO's head, and then drags it over to his body to reattach it to make him whole again. Except as soon as he tears his head off and starts dragging his head across the battlefield... C-3PO just goes, oh, well, this is a real drag, isn't it? And then after he gets dragged over to his body, he says, well, now I'm just beside myself with rage, and it's just fucking, I I hate you, C-3PO, you're the
0: worst. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I might have a new favorite part.
1: There's a lot of goofy stuff in that arena fight. Like, uh, I can't remember the name of the Jedi, but uh, the one where he jumps down, and he force pushes a bunch of droids, and he gets this really stupid grin on his face. Oh Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh my favorite scene from the entire trilogy. Probably the duel of the fates. Not even probably. It's it's the duel of the fates.
1: You see the the fun thing about this is that there's so many meme moments that are specifically in Attack of the Clones.
2: Yeah, Attack of the Clones is not super memorable, but, like, if you've seen memes from the prequel trilogy, like, over half the memes you've seen are from Attack of the Clones.
0: Well, hello there.
1: <laughs> that's actually Revenge, one of the it is, Revenge of the Sith. Oh, right. Dang. Just like Dark Plague is the wise.
2: Yeah. But the one about the, uh, records being, uh, the archives being incomplete, that's absolutely, uh, Attack of the Clones.
1: Delightful, the imagination of a child. I slaughtered them like animals. This is where the fun begins. Nope, that was actually in Revenge of the Sith. Yep.
2: Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite part, Keith? Hmm.
1: I, say, I think overall, my favorite part is probably Revenge of the Sith, the opening space battle. Uh, with Star Wars, I've just always enjoyed the space battles more than everything else.
2: That's fair. The one where uh, fucking Anakin's using his ship to push fucking buzzer droids off of uh, the fucking Kenobi's ship, because Kenobi's gonna die. Yeah, That one's another great wa- moment for R2, in that the buzz droids immediately destroy the fucking astromech droid on fucking Kenobi's ship, and then they come over to try and do the exact same thing to R2, and R2 just shocks him in the face, and the buzz droid dies. R2's the best. Was there anything else we wanted to discuss about the prequels? Uh, Not really that I can think of. I think it's important to note that they get a lot more guff than they deserve. Yeah, They're not perfect movies, but they are definitely enjoyable movies.
1: Well, small correction. The first one is absolutely a bad movie.
2: Okay, yeah. The first one's a bad movie. There's a reason I walked on one and a half times
0: beat. It's a bad movie with two good parts. Yeah. Uh,
2: To be fair, if if it was possible, I would watch the movies, except I would cut specific scenes out of all of the movies to make it more enjoyable. Like, the scene where fucking, as Matt pointed out, Anakin and Padme go to fucking Naboo and start dancing on tick bears or whatever the fuck those things were.
1: I mean, didn't Um, Topher Grace take the original trilogy and cut it down to like a two and a half hour movie?
2: Yeah, that's probably the best way to do it. My point being, I would cut scenes out of the second and third movie and make it more enjoyable, and I would cut two scenes out of the first movie and watch those scenes and none of the rest of the first movie. Anyways, the second and third movies aren't bad movies. You should give them more credit than they currently get on the internet.
0: They did add some flavor to the Star Wars universe. What that flavor is, uh, that's entirely up for uh, debate,
2: but... Strawberry. No, I said that as a joke. I'm standing by it now. Fucking the prequels movies are 100% the strawberry ice cream of Star Wars in that... uh, Much like a Neapolitan ice cream where some people love strawberry and some people hate strawberry, and it's just kind of a toss-up of what people feel. Yeah, That's how the prequels are going to be in most people's minds. uh, (laughs) I um, can get behind that. I don't uh, like the Strawberry Neapolitan.
1: Well, now I have to ask, of the remaining trilogies, which one's chocolate, which one's vanilla?
2: Uh, Original Tridge is chocolate. Uh, New trilogy is uh, vanilla.
0: Reverse for me. Vanilla for the original. And new for the chocolate.
2: I only say that because the original trilogy, in my mind, is the best. In my mind, the best is uh, chocolate. And the new trilogy is the one that was designed to appeal to the widest audience. And that's why it's vanilla.
0: Oh, our opinions are the same then, because... uh, We just have different opinions on ice cream. (laughs) On ice cream, yes. I think the only way to solve this is
1: uh, you listening at home. Uh, Which new trilogy is which flavor of a Neapolitan ice cream?
2: Uh, Yeah, Uh, that's our question for the audience today. It definitely wasn't our planned question for the audience, but 100%, I want you to sort the trilogies of Star Wars based on their flavor in Neapolitan ice cream.
0: (laughs) Don't tell us which flavor you like the most, just tell us which flavor represents what.
2: That's a fucking weird one.
0: It is a weird one. But, uh... This was kind of a weird topic.
2: We're kind of weird people.
1: I was going to say, the topic wasn't weird, we just are.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Anyway, is there anything else?
1: I believe it's just time for some recommendations.
0: Alright, why don't you go first then?
1: Okay, so I was actually thinking of doing uh, Knights of the Old Republic just because it's a classic Star Wars game. But recently, I've been playing Jedi Fallen Order, and... Honestly, it might be one of the most fun Star Wars games ever played. It really one, gets you into the feel of playing a Jedi. Now, it does have Souls-esque combat, but it's actually only the fact that you respawn enemies when you rest. That's the only <laughs> thing that Souls like
2: in it. That one is definitely... Uh, I have played through that one recently. And by recently, I mean about uh, two years ago now. Um, I actually did really enjoy Fallen Order. I definitely feel like it's one of the more solid fucking Star Wars games to have come out in recent history.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah, the combat is like nice and weighty. I think when people say it's Souls-esque, they just mean like it's not the kind of combat where you just push a button and stop thinking. Like You have to think about combat a little bit. It's, Souls-esque has just been a term that people start to use. It doesn't really fit anymore. Oh yeah,
1: uh, and, and the reason I think people really fell into saying it was like a Dark Souls but Star Wars was because you have the meditation spots that you go to and you can rest up to restock everything. And when yeah. you do that, that responds all the enemies, which is kind of enemies constantly responding is kind of a Dark, Soul, Dark Souls thing more often than not. And I think that's why they're saying it is more so than the combat itself.
2: Yeah. Um But yeah, I was a big fan of that game. I definitely super enjoyed it. Uh... I was also considering talking about Knights of the Old Republic, um, but then I thought about it, and like I'm 95% sure I've recommended Knights of the Old Republic the last time we talked about Star Wars. Um,
0: yeah, I think I, so.
2: It seems like something I would do, because it's absolutely my favorite Star Wars game of all time. So instead, I'm recommending something not at all Star Wars related, and that's the manga for Komi Can't Communicate. It's a fantastic one that Matt forced me to read recently, and by forced me to, I mean he mentioned it briefly in passing a couple months ago, and then recently told me that the anime is coming out, and I was like, fuck it, if the anime is coming out, I'll read the manga. Uh, And it consumed my life for a week, and it was great, and I recommend everyone else have their life consumed for a week to read it. And I was going to
0: say, on a completely unrelated note, but is now kind of related to the uh, recommendation that Peter made is the anime that I just finished watching the other night. It is called Laid Back Camp, or Yuru Camp. It is not heavy on plot whatsoever. If you want a nice show to just relax to and enjoy, this is it. Because all it is is friends going camping, enjoying nice scenic campgrounds, and having a good time with some light comedy thrown in there. Just a heartwarming and relaxing experience. Warming like the campfires. Good old
2: warming campfires.
0: if that uh, wraps everything up. Did um... anyone
2: guess our uh, Instagram post?
1: As of now, no one has guessed it.
0: Okay. No one guessed it. No new comments or
2: suggestions. I take it nope uh once again if anyone does manage to figure it out before this episode goes live you'll absolutely get called out on a future episode once we think to acknowledge it yeah
0: and uh, thank you for tuning in if you have any suggestions for any future topics that we could talk about feel free to shoot us an email at what is my podcast about at or leave a comment in, uh, any place that you can leave comment for us. You can find our episodes released once every two weeks on every podcast streaming service that there is available. And YouTube also, if that is your choice of platform. And uh, comment, rate us, give us a like. Anything else would really help we're not too picky about what we get and thanks for watching and tune in next time when we talk about uh, what are we talking about
2: next time
1: Uh, looks like we're talking about an 8 foot tall vampire lady and her friends that doesn't seem right
2: I'm still interested Hmm. it's
0: kind of creepy